Hello, Jesse. Hi there. Great to have you on the show. So good to be here. And since we're keeping this cool and sleek, we'll <laughs> jump right into the meat of the matter. <laughs> so in your article for Salon, one of your first points is the myth and misconception that only communist countries rely on state violence. Yeah. Um, you know, there's uh, there's an idea that um, is really commonplace in uh, mainstream thinking in the United States, including liberals, but it especially has salience on the right um, and with the libertarian sect, that capitalism... Uh, is based on um, free exchange and uh, market opportunities that people can take advantage of by uh, using their free will to meet their needs in the ways that they best see fit. Um, and this kind of frames how we understand uh, like the economic life of the United States to be, people going out into a free market, uh, engaging in free exchange, um, a lot of freedom. But um, I think what I wanted to point out was that um, this is a completely misleading understanding of what's happening uh, in capitalism, that actually um, all of the transactions that, that may, you know, with rose-tinted glasses on look free are um, take place in the context of enormous amounts of coercion uh, and not just the coercion that happens when um, most people are propertyless and so have to rely on uh, employment for income, um, but all sorts of other types as well. Uh, just simply um, going into negotiations with somebody who has a lot of wealth, it um, throws off your whole bargaining position and coerces you into lots of stuff. People patently feel like their lives are being pressured into making certain decisions. Um, and of course, it all uh, happens on a background of state violence that enforces property law, contract law, uh, the, the, the things that make uh, commerce and trade and finance possible. Um, all of it relies on, on all debt relief, all fulfillment of contract obligations rely on the state being willing to be marshaled in the interests of, uh, you know, what one party in, in the negotiations. Um, and so uh, in the end, really, like, pe people should realize and, and it would it would um, do us a great political service if they would um, uh, begin to I mean may, maybe it, it sort of already is um, begin to shed the the sort of um, common ideological understanding of, uh, of the American economy is based on free exchange and really begin to see it as um, a system where the market is imposing imperatives on everyone. Uh, rather than liberating everyone to take advantage of its opportunities, it's really um, driving uh, uh, and, and um, placing imperatives on people. Uh, you know, obviously, like I said, the, the biggest one is placing imperatives on um, everybody to, to ruthlessly compete with one another for jobs. Um, but it also places imperatives on uh, the alleged victors of the capitalist economy, which is the, the capitalists, the ones who own the property. You know, you, you'll, you'll hear from there, there's a um, moment in the documentary, The Corporation, where um, these protesters are protesting outside of some oil CEO's house. And he explains to them that, like, the things that they're protesting, you know, like for a better world and um, 
you know, ecological sustainability and stuff like that. Like that's all stuff that he sympathizes with personally. And like, you know, he's not the target. He, he's just doing the bidding of he has a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders, of the corporation or whatever it is. And it just showed that, like, actually, even the capitalists are not free. Right. Like this is not free exchange if he has to do something that offends his alleged morals in service to the shareholders, infinite wealth acquisition drive well then like it's not actually free like the market is driving him it's driving ownership uh to ruthlessly compete with one another for market share to constantly develop the forces of production to constantly try and save money on labor costs you know the, the market isn't this freeing agent uh it's really a a, a coercive agent um and so re really i think that is a, a lot of the point that i was trying to make there which ties in with the conversation I was having earlier this week with a libertarian. And we were talking about the origins of Marxism in the late 1800s. And I was explaining to her the factory system and the sorts of wages people had. And she was thinking, why would anyone work for those sorts of wages? Why would anyone work in those sorts of conditions? And I was tempted to say, how ignorant are you? there was not much of an option. When you have a, an extreme oversupply of labor, you have to take what you can get. The choice is starving or not starving. Brings us to your second point in your article that goes into what you concluded with there. Capitalist economies are based on free exchange. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, the, the workers have nothing to exchange except for our power to work, right? That's the only way that we can derive uh, any income, derive the means to subsist. You know, that there's this writer, Ellen Mikesons Wood, who um, has a wonderful book called The Origins of Capitalism. I think The Origin, maybe, of Capitalism, uh, mm -hmm. out on Verso, um, which really shows how the the – how how this uh, system came to be the the system of um, constantly placing market imperatives on everyone um, and how that really is the engine that fuels capitalism's uh, sort of like infinite conquest of territory and of markets um, and its commodification of everything that this this sort of engine that fuels its expansion um, is to be found in the market imperatives on on uh, on competition. And and yeah, I mean, it, it's it's simply like it, you can you can imagine making the case there that you had free uh, market opportunities if everyone were able to leave the market, right? Like if you could just step out of the market, then you would be free to be there or not to be there, and then it would be much more voluntary. But um, you know, people are coerced into the labor market because we can't survive otherwise. They're you know we'll we'll just starve to death. And so like you know, in in that initial interaction, it it, it makes it clear that. Um, this is not free for us, the job market. It's not a free market at all. And it's capable of excluding people. You know, even even at the height of the Clinton boom, the I think the lowest unemployment ever got then was 3.8%. That's millions of people who can't find work even in the best times. Depending on how close you are to that back of that line, that 3.8%, it, it takes a huge psychological toll in, in, in terms of like, uh, your freedom and your ability to, to really pursue happiness in your life. Um, and so that, that's, I think, where the, the proposal for something like a universal basic income or job guarantee comes from, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into in, in a bit. But, uh, yeah, yes. I mean, th these seem like ways of uh, giving workers uh, such leverage against capital that they're really not uh, dependent on. It, it really breaks the power of the market over everybody's life. Yes, and one of the things I've discussed with a few of the economists who've come on 
is the fact that the neoclassical tradition is removed from reality in many ways. And you touch on that when you say, in your second point, most find ourselves constantly stuck between competing pressures and therefore stressed out, exhausted, lonely, and in search of meaning, as though we're not in control of our lives. And this is important because when you think about it from a societal perspective, being overworked and undercompensated has very serious ripple effects. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it makes for a terribly lonely, um, atomized society when uh, really, you know, the times when people are happiest, uh, the great majority of people are when they have free time to pursue their happiness, to spend time with loved ones, to engage in cultural and, and community life. And uh, all that stuff is basically you know, like we're basically deprived of it in the neoclassical framework where everybody just has to like work all the time so that we can <laughs> pay off our debts. But that does seem to be also a byproduct of human nature, people wanting to consume more than each other. Uh, that it, well, if it seems to be a byproduct of human nature, then I think uh, seems is really the problem there. Um, I don't, I think that uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find efficient uh, anthropological grounds to justify that statement. I mean, it, it's uh, for for the vast majority of the evolutionary of the evolutionary life of the hominid, we, there was no surplus in society at all. It was small bands of hunters and gatherers. So how, how human nature could come with predilections about how to uh, distribute the surplus mystifies me. Well, there's a need to acquire things. There's a need to create no I, I don't think that's true I, I actually don't think that um, that uh, paleontology and anthropology bear that out that there is not some kind of drive to <clears throat> have more than your neighbor at the very least for reproductive reasons uh, n no not really I mean I, the the ev evolution of humans uh, I think shows a great deal more um, cooperation and uh, communal living than competition. You know, with, with, with no surplus, if you have more than your neighbor, you get exiled from the group. <laughs> uh, it isn't until, um, you know, really the agricultural revolution when society begins to start a, to create a surplus and then we have to deal with the question of how to distribute it. But before that, that was not, a, it just simply wasn't a question. So, uh, you know, it, it may be that you want to argue that human nature has changed as a result of um, the agricultural revolution and the, the necessity that it placed on us to distribute a surplus. But, um, it, but unless, unless that's the case, then I, I think human nature is maybe the wrong phrase here. Well, point three is always a fun one. The idea that communism murdered 110 million, some people even cited in hundreds of millions of people, depending on your source, is it really the bloodiest of ideologies? Yeah, I mean, that that's, I think, where the key point is with regards to, to American uh, 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 human rights atrocities, um, is that, uh, like, attributing um, human rights atrocities to, uh, or, or, like, depicting them as, like, a, un a thing that has uniquely befallen um, 
countries under the leadership of communists and socialist parties uh, is is really um, <laughs> lacks for self critique and uh, and shows that it's just pure ideology. I mean the 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 number of Irish people who star who the British starved for <laughs> all those years while while Ireland was uh, you know, still a, a net exporting potato uh, exporting country, um, while millions of people are starving, it, it just shows is enough to show that capitalism has a, a, um, a distinctly uh, 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 human rights atrocity creating uh, bent. Um, and uh, and I, you know, so I, I just think that when we look at um, things like. Uh, the Great Chinese Famine, say, or the gulags. Uh, I just think that it's insufficient as an explanation that to just say like oh communism or oh socialism. Um, that rather we we have to look at the political and historical realities that surrounded these horrible events uh, to to truly understand where they went wrong. Yes, there have definitely been a number of terrible events in countries with all sorts of different governments. Yeah going back to the very beginning of civilization. So the argument is a little bit ludicrous, although it is very powerful because of the images it conjures. Yeah, it is. I mean, there was a deliberate effort over the course of the um, 20th century to depict communism as the sort of ultimate evil ideology uh, in service of a, a conflict with Russia that basically wasn't ideological. It basically, I mean, as we've seen in the in the in recent years, you know, like the the conflicts between Russia and the United States respond to much more than just like what you know economic program the you know they're they're advocating versus what we're advocating. You know, it's like an inter-imperial uh, power conflict between the two countries. So, um, but you know, d during that time, it takes a lot of like ideological um you know conducting to to build up the sort of necessary uh fear of communism that can uh justify all sorts of terrible proxy wars and support for horrible dictators in the 20th century um and uh and yeah the remnants were still living with you know the 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 anti-communism that they were able to generate uh in that concerted effort um uh, definitely lives with us now although you know th there's hope in that it, it's uh, or the like political hope specifically that it's this is dissipating you know there's that pew poll that everybody likes to cite showing that young people uh actually when asked about their preferences seem to prefer socialism to capitalism who knows what they mean by that but um you know it's just may maybe a sign or definitely i think is a sign of the the sort of withering effects of all of that anti-communist indoctrination that this country was put Yes, and we could <clears throat> we could have several podcasts trying to get a clear and concise definition of socialism yeah. and communism. But these basic points in your fourth one regarding human rights atrocities is similar to the third one, and also perfectly reasonable because capitalist governments do in fact commit human rights atrocities. Yeah, terrible ones. And the fifth one, the notion that 21st century American communism would resemble 20th century Soviet and Chinese horrors. This one also I have to agree with, because given any situation, the variables are different, the system is different, so it's bound to turn out differently. But we can't predict whether it would have been good or bad. I just think that it's clear that... Um 
in a pre-industrial society, if you're trying to compete in a global market with advanced industrial capitalist um, economies, um, you know, you have to industrialize. And industrializing puts terrible burden. I mean, it, it, so many horrors like we were talking about, including in the capitalist world, including in the United States of America, come out of the need to industrialize. You know, like the Soviet Union needed slave labor to industrialize in the form of the gulags. Yes, and so did the United States in the form of the slavery system that we had. These the, in, Industrialism puts terrible uh, uh, burdens uh, uh, on basically uh, whatever government is trying to achieve them to, to like um, take really uh, inhumane paths. To doing that, but um, now in the United States, after we are industrialized, we're, um, like we've already built up such a huge capital stock, it seems less. Uh, you know, it, it seems like you could generate a, a system of uh, sharing in the the bounty of that capital stock uh, that wouldn't require the sort of horrors that industrializing uh, does require, or has seemed to require over the course of. Uh, of uh, the last couple hundred years, um, uh, and I think that's that's my only point. Not not that it's predictable how anything would turn out, just that it would be a lot easier to generate equitable outcomes with all of the modern tools that we have, um, fiat currency, and uh, you know, um, uh, you know, all the rest of it besides just just the you know r um, increasing automation of of labor and of uh, like transportation resources and things like that. Um, I think it would be a lot easier, given the current uh, scenario, to, to build something like a meaningful um, a socialist or communist, uh, um, and I use those terms advisedly, like uh, um, uh, political economy. Yes, and Marx initially predicted that communism would take hold in an industrialized society like Germany or Great Britain, but... It turns out his prediction wasn't quite right. Yes, I am inclined to agree, and we did pay our dues during the Industrial Revolution, and that was also a horrible time in history. Yep. The 16-hour workdays and children slaving away. A, another interesting statement there, that communism is an aspiration not an immediately achievable state. It, like democracy and libertarianism, is utopian in that it constantly strives toward an ideal. I have talked about the iron law of oligarchy in some of my other podcasts, and I'm reminded of something that Ribbentrop, the German ambassador, said about Stalin's Russia when he described it as red fascism. Under a communist system, would it be significantly different than what we have, or would it still be a government in which a small number of people hold the lion's share of power? Uh, I mean, ideally, no. Power is uh, democratically distributed. That, that's I, I definitely think that that's part of the aspiration, too. The question is just, like, how to manage that. Well, I, I was talking in practice. How in practice would the ideal be achieved? Um, I think that there are certain tools that uh, we have that can ideally grow. Participatory budgeting seems to have some sort of pro sort of sort of promise. You know, I, I, basically the internet. Um, I think the the potential that we have to harness that for democratic ends uh, is um, uh, sort of untold at the moment. I mean, you you um, with with modern 
the internet and uh, all sorts of modern robotics, it's so it, it's the delivery of services is so much easier as long as you have the political will to do it and, and requires so much less, uh, you know, like centralized organization and authority. Um, uh, you know, one of the proposals that I talk about a lot is a job guarantee and uh, a job guarantee would be federally funded. It would have to be because that's who issues the currency. But um, uh, there's plenty of ways of making it um, sort of locally designed and locally responsible, including running it through uh, the not-for-profit sector um, so that you would have basically social entrepreneurs applying to the government for, um, uh, you know, block grants and, and uh, the means to employ, uh, you know, unemployed people. And so th this sort of thing wouldn't, uh, I mean, you know, who, who knows? It, it hasn't been implemented yet, but I, I think that there are, there's good reason to hope practically that we can have much more efficient, less bureaucracy-heavy systems now that, that can still, you know, generate quite equitable in, um, outcomes. Technology seems to make many of these ideals, democracy, libertarianism, and communism, much more achievable. One of the things that I've always focused on is innovation, which is a common argument people make against communism, is that it would discourage innovation. Mm -hmm. And how would you reply? I disagree. I mean, I think that, like, the... Uh, I think that people place too heavy um, a burden on money is the only incentive. I think people respond to all sorts of incentives. And, uh, um, you know, I, I think that actually if, if everybody were materially secure and every person who's into coding was free to, like, code uh, for however long in the day they want to do it as opposed to, like, have to go out and be a telemarketer for something or, like, you know, take reservations at a, a restaurant or something, um, like, I think it would hugely spur innovation and creativity, knowledge work, uh, artistic work. Um, I think it would make life in the United States uh, um, a lot uh, richer and better and more fulfilling. Um, you know, there, there's a, a, a sense in which what, like, the reason that uh, we're doing so little technological information uh, innovation and automation is that um, labor is too cheap, right? So, like, you have uh, a working class that's willing to work for so little, so the incentives aren't really placed on capital to invest in new uh, robotics, whereas if we had some sort of basic income or job guarantee that drove up the standard of living for workers, it might be more too expensive to hire workers and capitalists might then uh, invest more in innovation. Um, and so you, you've done both things with this. You've both spurred uh, technological innovation uh, that, that like fires people, right? It replaces um, human labor with uh, robot labor. Uh, but it also provides human, the, human who, the humans who are getting laid off with the means to subsist in the, in the meantime, or, or for ideally as long as they want. Which makes perfect sense. On the other hand, when they're talking about financial incentives, particularly in the pre-internet age, they were referring to investors who would help design and finish the prototype. If you have a wonderful idea, you still need to find some kind of backer, someone to assist you and to get it out. I suppose that argument is weaker now that information is so accessible to all of us. What you're saying with innovation being driven by intrinsic motivators 
is simpler because it is easier to find people who are willing to put money into it, who are willing to buy the product. Whereas if you had a, an exceptionally good idea in 1900, you would probably need to seek out someone uh -huh. with a lot of capital. Yeah, I mean, the the we have lots of, you know, if you have a good idea and put it on the internet um, and you have a good uh, social network, uh, you can, you know, and obviously the, the, those qualities are sort of class constricted in certain ways, but, but it's, yeah, it's much easier to find uh, uh, group funding investment in interesting projects. Um, obviously the capitalist class has a lot of extra cash at the moment and they're, they're happy to invest in stuff. And, you know, that it helps if you have an idea that can turn a profit, but, there, there's so many, so many, so much, so many people with so much money that if you can capture the imagination of a rich person, uh, you might just be, a, you know, it, it's they're like all over the internet. <laughs> Who knows? Yes, I don't know. Yes, if well, this happens in crowdfunding, and I have a little bit of experience with that. I've only had one successful project, but if something has, but I've only launched one project, so that's a hundred percent success rate, right? If someone has extra money, they're willing to donate it to a cause they believe in, yeah. perhaps for purely humanitarian reasons or for some kind of award that you can create with very little investment, monetary investment, maybe just your time. So that is the beauty of things like Kickstarter. Yeah. Yeah, very efficient. Much more efficient than the stock market, which is how we currently try and uh, like direct the surplus to its socially optimal investment pursuits. Basically, what the stock market does is manages to accumulate wealth in the hands of very few trusts, and that's basically all it's good for because they're they're not mostly issuing new stocks and you know uh, directing investment to like the employment of production productive like resources and and workers. They're basically taking existent stocks and selling them a thousand zillion times a day by algorithm in an attempt to shave little percentages of, of cents off of benign price changes and ship them to the wealthy people who own the vast majority of the capital stock. So, uh, yeah, completely inefficient, really, really bad at its uh, stated goal. And I think that uh, the Internet and, and crowdsourcing uh, holds a, a great deal of promise in that, in that division. In a way, projects like Linux, or any open source project really, is an example of the communist spirit in action, lack of a better word. Well, and, and uh, the, the most sort of exciting uh, sort of communistic um, initiatives happening now are, are, are in Creative Commons licensing, you know, as an alternative to capitalist, uh, uh, you know, um, intellectual property uh, constructions, um, Creative Commons really does sort of create a, a new commons for um, in a market that's, you know, obviously there's huge pressures on it to privatize and privatize and privatize. Um, and I think that's really exciting because I, I think that um, we, the generation that is growing up with the Internet and who, for whom the Internet has sort of been a, a basis of social formation um, I think sort of intrinsically ha have that idea in mind that like if you see a YouTube video and you want to make a meme of it, you want to remix something, you want to take a thing that was made and then make something new out of it, that that's like a perfectly okay and normal thing to want to do. And so, it, it, so with things like um, what capitalists would consider piracy and stuff, creating, 
being sort of a moral and ethical norm for our generation, um, I think that uh, some things like Creative Commons as structures that can sort of codify that um, communistic spirit that you said that you mentioned, um, I think those are really really exciting. Well, it's becoming or already is very difficult to enforce copyright law. It's exhausting and. I think people realize they can still make a profit, even if they put it under Creative Commons. And yeah, much. totally. And, and there, and if we really wanted to drive resources into the creative sector and the the um, innovative sector, then we would just do that. I mean, like we would employ people in that field, or like just give them money. You know what I mean? Like uh, Dean Baker has the idea for a culture allowance, which I think there even is one in Brazil where you just give people vouchers and every month and they can spend it on whatever sort of cultural thing they want. They can go see a play, they can go to a concert, they can buy books, whatever, you know, whatever it is that they want, however they engage culturally. And that drives money into the cultural sector. And it doesn't require basically having these government granted monopolies on ideas that people just extract rents from. So, how does communism promote individuality? Well, just in the way that I already said, that if you have, if you're guaranteed material security because we are all sharing in the um, capital wealth of this country, uh, then you have time and resources to develop your passions, pursue happiness and and do all of the things that um, actually make life worth living. You know, currently we, we have all this purported political freedom, but if you're like, uh, if you have like two nursing home shifts in a day uh, and like that's just one day out of the week and you have a whole week of this, like you actually don't get time to and don't have the means to, to pursue your individuality. That That's what makes um, people so... The sort of countervailing point also in, in the piece that we're discussing right now um, is to do with, uh, like, what capitalism promotes. And, like, if you look at, like, the um, suburban uh, real estate developments in this country and all the strip malls and stuff, like, you, you'll see, like, in tremendous conformity. And, and basically, you know, for all of the options we're supposed to have that we're supposed to, you know, revel in, basically, it's only a kind of few sorts of things that we can do. And, and it's, it's, this obviously isn't the sort of best way to promote individuality and, you know, artistic or cultural individual expression. It's terrible, and, and and partly it's imposed on society by uh, th there's like a double um, uh, uniformity imposed, and, and it's imposed by the mode of production, right? So you have, you know, because it relies on mass production, you have millions and millions of people who are performing the same labor, and millions and millions of people who are consuming the same products, and that that's like. Um, uh, you know, capitalism's contribution to individuality is, is those things. Whereas if everybody had the means to survive without being dependent on selling their labor to a boss that's trying to get rich off of them, uh, you would have, um, uh, I, yeah, like I said before, an absolute flourishing in, in um, human creativity. Wouldn't this be achievable with basic universal income without nationalizing assets and businesses and all these other things? I think that you need to have collective ownership of the means of production. I do think that. I mean, I think that that's how the universal basic income works, right? Like, you have a sovereign wealth fund, or, or um, and maybe you get the resources for a sovereign wealth fund 
through or like startup funds through a land value tax, for instance. Um, and then you have a basis to like continually pay out dividends towards everybody. And the sovereign wealth fund can buy up uh, stocks and bonds and can can really make uh, basically social con- social ownership happen of the means of production. But of course, by collectivizing the means of production, you're speaking in a communistic sense, not in a Georgist one. And you are in favor of everything but people's personal possessions. Correct. Yeah, yeah. People, I people can. Have, uh, yeah. What I what I mean by property is is um, wealth, um, uh, capital income yielding assets, right? So like uh, intellectual property, land holdings. Um, uh, uh, you know, royalties and, and monopolies of all sorts, and um, you know, the dividends from uh, the capital stock and interest from bonds. You know, all, th- th- this sort of thing. That, that's what I mean by property. I don't mean like your phone or your shoes or whatever. Like people can keep that. That's not property. That's just possessions. They're not trying to make money off of it. That sounds good in theory. And, and, and it works in practice, too. I mean, this is what um, Alaska has. They have the Alaska Permanent Fund. It's a sovereign wealth fund. It's owned by the public. It simply buys up assets. It sends dividends to everybody. If you live in Alaska, you get like $2,000 a year. It's not a subsistence-level universal basic income, but it is a universal basic income. And it works like a charm. It's so easy to do. There's sovereign wealth funds all over the world. Yes, yes. But they're still essentially capitalistic countries. Yeah, well, the sovereign wealth fund doesn't generally own, like, doesn't own the capital stock in general. It sort of approaches that. Um, if we had a much bigger um, uh, sovereign wealth fund than we have, you know, basically a U.S. sovereign wealth fund, or or lots and lots of smaller ones, uh, we could really have a big effect on on basically uh, dispossessing uh, capital and and providing enough income for people so that they could live without being beholden to the job market. Well, I'm reminded of a popular quote by Buckminster Fuller, and of course I'll have to paraphrase it, in which he says, Nowadays, one person in 10,000 can have a very good idea, and the other, 9,999, won't need to work, necessarily. And I, it is a gut reaction to this sort of proposal to wonder if many people would just be idle, and idleness, of course, is considered a great vice in our society. Yeah, I, I really don't think most people would. I mean, I think most people want to do stuff. They want to see people. They want to go check things out. They want to, you know, <laughs> people are, in, like, have so much more faith in people. People are, the, the American people are wonderful and are always trying to do interesting, innovative, cool things. And so, like, why should we imagine that everybody just wants to, is going to be like a stoner and sit around? Um <laughs> <laughs> or like you know, if you if like people occasionally want to be a stoner and sit around, like that's okay too. Uh, like I don't see why that's such a huge problem either. You know, pe- people should be allowed leisure time. Um, but yeah, I, I think imagining that everybody would be idle is just uh, a, an extremely bleak. You know, if people who who think well, everyone would just be idle, sh- they should ask themselves like, would I just be idle? And if they wouldn't be idle, then why do they think that anybody else would? But a percentage of the population would take it as an opportunity to do as little as possible, well, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. A percentage of the population does that under capitalism. It's the people who inherit great wealth and who don't have to work. That's the, Those people, if they want to be idle, have every 
you know, they can totally do that. Even though they want to do that, they basically don't. I mean, you see all sorts of like mega stars who have tons and tons of money doing all sorts of things with it. They don't have to work, but what they want to do is be on the board of this. They want to start a perfume line, you know, whatever they want to do, they'll they'll do, you know, people want to want to do things with it. They just want to occupy their time. And the, the small percentage of people who, would just sit around doing nothing like that's basically economically insignificant. Let, let them do nothing. I mean, I don't really care about them. Yeah, even if it was his 10%, I don't think that would be an enormous blow to society. They would still be consuming. Yeah, exactly. They would have to produce it. They're just, they're just aggregate demand providers. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't know how that term fits in with the... Uh, communistic conception of the world but I do have my sympathies with Keynes yeah but like as as I said like um, or as you quoted me as saying uh, like (laughs) communism isn't like immediately it's not like there's a switch that you can flip and then suddenly it's gone from capitalism to communism right like like where we have like communism is the goal it's it's like the you want to move as much property and and control into the commons and as much control in decentralized uh, democratic uh polity as possible but um you know along the way you've got you know we have all of this capitalism that we've had for the last uh several hundred years so like in the meantime like yeah, boost aggregate demand and and give workers uh, leverage over capital, and then hope that they can organize a, a struggle for more radical uh, changes. All right, Here we go. Inequality has been a major topic of discussion. Piketty's book was a big impetus. It's incredible that. A technical and dense tome has made it to the bestseller list. And I know that you wrote an article and were slightly critical of the book. Could you tell us about that? Basically on the grounds that, that we've already discussed. Like uh, the So the idea that he most famously puts forward is that the rate of... That under normal circumstances that we can foresee into the future here... Uh, the rate of return to capital uh, will tend to exceed the rate of growth in the economy, and that when when that's the case, it it produces inequality. It, it's it acts as a suction pump, pumping money from the masses up to the people who own the capital resources that are yielding R, the rate of return to capital, um, and only when we can like really boost G up growth of the economy super high can we hope to even compete with uh, the rate of return to capital um, which means that it um, requires an enormous uh, productive and and, um, demand uh, uh, maintaining effort in order to yield even the most basic uh, equality right the rising tide that um, that is spoken of as lifting all boats um, and uh, so like um, we, we have this conflict right between growth and the rate of return to capital R and G and G has to constantly keep up with R in order to have any sort of equality in a capitalist system but um, it seems so obvious to me that that's just a session to this conflict that doesn't need to be a conflict 
Because you could take R and through the things that we've talked about, a land value tax, a sovereign wealth fund, uh, creative commons, all of these, these means of taking private property and turning them public, you could just direct R to the masses. And if you directed R to the masses and rather than to a small group of people, then letting R exceed G, just letting it do that, um, not trying to keep up with G, but just letting R exceed G, that wouldn't create terrible inequality because the capital income that would be derived would be derived generally and not by a tiny little group of capitalists. Um, and, you know, through a, a universal basic income and a job guarantee. Um, and so, uh, it, like, like letting this um, conflict between R and G die means that we could uh, be a lot more relaxed about the productive process. We don't have to constantly be breaking our backs and turning out more sales and, um, you know, fueling consumption and fueling production and doing these obviously ecologically and psychologically damaging processes. Uh, we could just kind of relax, let the capital stock... Um, it's it's capital income uh like pay everybody and and move to a much lower growth society uh and i think that's a much better um proposal for how to think about the solution of r is greater than g than uh, piketty's idea of a global wealth tax i was very disappointed with the book because i expected something much more innovative to come out of it a much more innovative solution a, an extremely progressive income tax just doesn't work because people find ways to circumvent it. And that played out in Piketty's own country recently. So some sort of alternative would be better. <laughs> 